Haven Your Northwest School of Kingdom Ministry starts September 18th, so it's just right around the corner. This is going to be our third year of doing the class of the church, and over the past three years, it's had an amazing impact on this church's life and culture. We've seen such a deepened understanding of our identity in Christ and actually an activation and practical understanding of how to engage in Holy Spirit ministry. So I want to give you the chance right now to hear from some students here who go to this church, Veer Northwest, who graduated last year from School of Kingdom Ministry about what their experience was like. For me, I would say the most impactful part of Sockham would definitely be the teachings. Um, growing up in church, uh, we sometimes get very elementary teachings on uh, praying for strangers and praying for the Holy Spirit, power evangelism, and speaking in tongues. But in Sockham, we get a really deep and foundational understanding of why we do those things. The teachings from Putty, uh, the, the local teachings, the activations that we went out on, uh, that is what impacted me the most. I'd say the most impactful part of School of Kingdom Ministry was just learning um, more about my identity and getting to a point of just feeling totally able to accept God's love and um, it just brought a lot of freedom for me and a lot of confidence to, to share that love out with other people. I've been a Christian all my life, and, and this was brand new to me to hear all of the different ways of um, what the kingdom is all about right now and living the kingdom day in and day out and bringing the kingdom to life to me. I would encourage someone to take a School of Kingdom Ministry if they have any interest in, in going deeper in their faith and learning more about who they are and who God is. I would encourage someone to take School of Kingdom Ministry if they have those serious um, spiritual questions like, um, is God good all the time? Or how do I even begin to love strangers? Or what's my purpose? Um, I would definitely recommend them to take Sockham. The teachings, um, you get all those answers in the teachings and you just get a deeper understanding of who you are in Christ and um, why that matters to the outside world. I'd encourage anybody to do it. Anybody that, that just wants to you know, build their faith, build... Uh, you know their own abilities and skills in in kingdom work and in gifts of the spirit. Um, it, it's just it's wonderful. And and if there wasn't a year two, we we've already talked. We'd do year one again. Yeah, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? <clears throat> Let me tell you, School of Kingdom Ministry is about more than doing. It is about being. You, you learn who you are in Christ. I mean, what does it really mean to say a person's born again? And you learn that, and, and you begin to live it out in a daily basis of just having this solid foundation of understanding my relationship with God and my new identity in Christ. And then the ministry stuff builds on top of that. And so I encourage you to consider doing it. One of the things I love about Stockholm is that uh, both years, there, there has been this spread of ages. You know, from, <clears throat> from 18-year-olds to 70-year-olds. And the, the wonderful thing about that is that there's connection that's made. People develop relationships. And the 18-year-olds get to know the 70-year-olds, and they find out that they like each other. <laughs> and so there are friendships. And so, I mean, I love that. 
Uh, in fact, I would just say this, you know, like the shepherd's job is, uh, is to uh, direct the sheep and where's the next pasture we're headed to and what's it look like and how are we going to get there? And I want to say what's being taught in School of Kingdom Ministry is the next pasture. It's the next thing God has for us. And so I want the whole flock to go there. I want everybody to take Stockholm. Guarantee you, you won't regret it. We'll give you your money back if you come for five or six or eight weeks and you say, oh, I'm out. I don't like this. We'll give you all your money back. And, um, but, but if you do that, I'm sure you'll keep going. So I encourage you, consider, consider signing up for Sockham. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. Okay, before we go any further, I have a joke for you today. And um, now this is a good joke. Listen. There are people from the first service that are just getting it right now. So they're out at a restaurant, and they're just starting to laugh right now. But uh, there was this guy that was homeless, and, and he was looking for food. And he's just going door to door, knocking on doors, asking for food. And he, and he ended up in this well-to-do neighborhood some, somewhere like Beverly Hills. And he knocks on the door, and a man comes to the door to answer. And, and he says, sir, he said, I'm, I'm starving. I have no place to live, and can, can you give me some food? And the guy says, I'll gladly give you some food, but I really think you ought to work for your food. I think that's just right, and, and you'll, you know, you'll maintain your self-respect that way. And he says, so here's what I want you to do. Take this bucket of green paint and go to my, the back of my house and paint the porch. He said, I prepared it. It's, it's right there. Porch is ready for you to paint. So you go back and paint the porch, and then I'll feed you. So the guy goes off. 30 minutes later, he's knocking on the door. He says, well, I'm done. And the owner of the house says, what? How, how could you finish that whole porch in 30 minutes? And he said, well, it really wasn't that big. And he says, and by the way, sir, that wasn't a Porsche. That was a Mercedes. <laughs> See, I, really what I'm doing is testing your intelligence. With this, it's just the, 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 yeah, so that, that's what the purpose of these jokes are. Okay, today we're starting a three-part series uh, that's designed around questions that you gave us. And so today we're going to try to answer three questions and, uh, and focus on those. Next week we'll have a couple questions. And then the third week we're going to have a panel up here with our preaching team that we'll all be here and we'll interact over the questions and, um, and, 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 and do as many of them as we can. We're not going to be able to do all of them. But today I have three questions we're going to focus on. And one of the questions just focuses on a passage of Scripture and what it means, what Jesus was really trying to say. One of the other questions focuses on the Garden of Eden. And then the third question focuses on a, a real current issue, a tough question about homosexuality. And so uh, we're going to do those this week. Next week, we're going to talk about heaven. And one of the questions we received was, what happens immediately when you die? Do you go straight to heaven? Uh, do you, like, wake up in heaven? Uh, does an angel come and take you there? Is there some side room you have to wait in for a while, something like purgatory or something like that, that, uh, that you have to go through before you get into heaven? We're going to deal with that question and then we're going to couple with that next week a question about reincarnation and eternal life and how do the two fit together. What's the Bible say about that? And so it's going to be exciting uh, stuff next week, and, uh, and, and I think it's, we have good stuff for today, too. So let's uh, just pray, open our hearts to the Lord just consciously. Um, you, know, you know, part of my 
assumption is that we're, we're coming with open hearts. You know, we want to come with open hearts and, and really ready for what God has for us. And, and, but, it's, but it's a good thing just to consciously state that as well. So, uh, Father, right now we come and we just say we want, at least we want to have open hearts. Just tell them that. I want to have an open heart. Tell them that. So I, so I open my heart to you. Speak to me today. Reveal yourself to me more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start with the tough question. Here, here is the exact question, okay? Question one, is homosexuality something people are born with or is it a choice? All right, that, that's a tough issue, wouldn't you say, in our culture today? It's not tough because it's hard to answer uh, questions about homosexuality from the Bible, but it's tough because it's such a, a hot-button issue in our culture today. And you have people on both extremes on an issue like this. You have people on the extreme that would say, whatever two consenting adults want to do is their business. Nobody else should say yes or no, right or wrong, or anything else about it. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people that, that pick it and that would um, condemn you, even if you simply disagree with them on an issue like this. You know, their position would be, well, then you're going to hell because you're, you're, not, you're not focused on the truth or something like that. And, and, and then we live in this day when a politically correct speech is so important and, and is so much a part of our culture, so much a part of uh, the, the air that we breathe in the world we live in that uh, it, it makes us all a little bit jumpy and a little bit nervous about saying anything having to do with an issue like this. And you know, the, the whole thing of politically correct speech and then hate speech, it, it, it really stifles open-hearted communication. It, it really shuts down just good-hearted people who want to just sit down and have a good-hearted discussion. And yeah, it's okay if we disagree. It's okay if you disagree with me. I'm not yeah, but, but to have an open-hearted, good discussion is really tough in our culture today. So this is a tough issue, but um, not, not because the Bible's uh, vague about it. Uh, you know, another thing that makes it tough, I think, is our hearts. You know, we are conditioned to sometimes to, to react to things. And, and a lot of people in the Christian community, uh, in our culture react to the whole politically correct thing and react to, um, to, to issues like this in such a way that we kind of like harden our hearts over an issue like this. It's very easy to harden my heart. It's very easy to develop a critical heart and, and a bitter heart when, when we hear things that we disagree with or see things that we think aren't right. But you know, one of the downsides of that is that when I, when I embrace bitterness, when I, when I embrace hardness of heart or a critical attitude, it impacts everybody within my circle of influence. You know, I can't just be bitter towards one person because when, when I'm bitter towards a person or a group of people or an institution, when I'm bitter, bitterness is in my heart. And I can't segment it and just let it come out when I'm just... With, with that, it influences everything, and it influences everyone around me. 
And so one of the things we want to say in a discussion like this is uh, we really want to ask ourselves, how would Jesus talk about this? You know, how would Jesus talk about this issue? How would Jesus treat people? And you can look in the Bible and you see how Jesus treated people. You see, he spoke truth, clear truth, but he, he loved and, and he didn't push people away that had open hearts. And so, um, well, let's just follow this pattern that we see in John 3.17, where God talks about his son. And in John 3.17, we read this. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So why did Jesus come? Listen, Jesus did not come to be the morality police. He didn't come to somehow institute some new moral code or some new religious code that is going to be imposed on an unsaved world and try to get that unsaved world to live up to this new code. That wasn't his purpose at all. His purpose was to come and to bring life. Now, the backdrop into which he came was the nation of Israel, which had law. And it had a, a, a clear moral code spelled out in the Old Testament. The main purpose of that code in the Old Testament was to show Jesus as being totally, completely righteous. It was to demonstrate that nobody else has ever lived up to it. And then along comes Jesus, and anybody that had a, a pure heart would look at him and say, this guy's actually doing it. He's the only one who ever lived a perfect life. And so he came not to condemn, but to seek and to save, to give life, to redeem. And Jesus himself said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so that always wants to be our heart. We always want that to be our heart. Uh, you know, we are not uh, the ones that are charged with the task of fixing our culture from the outside in. That's not the purpose. What, what our role is is to seek out broken people, people that need life, people that need Jesus. What we want to see is so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people swept into the kingdom of God and walking with Jesus, that culture changes because of that. But not because we're the ones that got our laws instituted. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't advance the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's the power of the Spirit that changes a person's life that makes them new. And they begin to live a new life through Jesus. And when they do that, then they have an influence that permeates. And the more and more people that come to know Jesus, the more we see heaven on earth. And so we're going to approach this from that perspective of, of non-judgment. We want to find a path where there's truth, but also uh, kindness kindness. It's easy, to, it's easy to say, oh, I love everybody, but then treat people with unkindness. And real love is going to be kind. You can't separate the two. Real love is going to be kind. It's going to be gentle. It's going to be direct as well. You can't have love without directness and truth, but you can't have love without kindness and gentleness either. And so the question is um, really talking about a person's sexual inclinations their, their desires, who are they attracted to sexually, and, um, and is it part of their DNA to be attracted, to, for a man to be attracted to another man? Is he born that way? 
for a woman to be attracted to another woman sexually and then to, to, to act on that. Is she born that way? Or is, is this a learned behavior? Is it their choice? Uh, you could add to that, is it the result of something that's happened to them in life, parenting or their, their background or, or uh, so many other things? And so, but back to the question, is it a choice or is it something they're born with? Here's the answer. We don't know. We don't know. I don't know enough about science to know that. And, and if I stand up here and say, no, it's not a choice, or it's always a choice, it's never. And for all I know, they're going to find some genetic marker that, that indicates that a person is born with an inclination towards same-sex relationship. I don't know. That might happen. But here's, here's what I do know. Whatever the inclination, whatever the, whatever the origin of the inclination, we all have choices, and we, we have choices as to what we do with the inclinations we have and what we do with the desires we have. Because our desires are not our identity. Listen, we got to get this. Our desires are not our identity. There's confusion in our culture today to the point, and you know, one of the, one of the core issues is men don't know how to relate to each other. I can't speak so much to women, but I, I can say that I see women who have intimate, close relationships where they hug and weep with each other, and, and it's just a, just a natural sister-to-sister thing. Men have a hard time with that, and, and somehow our culture has transitioned into the point that if a guy has an emotional attachment to another guy that in past generations might have just been, hey, we're buddies. We're friends, and I, and I love this guy. I care about him, and sometimes I feel that in here. I feel love for him. But today, if that happens, then there's this question, oh, well, am I gay? You know, because I have feelings. You know, when my dad was a boy, I remember pictures of him with his arm around his buddies. They would always put their arms around each other. They would walk down the street with their arms around each other's shoulders. Because they were buddies. But somehow we've transitioned into this other thing today where there's this, this uh, anxiety that then trans- translates any, any uh, e- emotion into that must be my identity, that must be who I am. And, and that's just obviously it's not right because desire is not identity. Uh, and and to, to think, well, wait a second, uh, Van, you just said a moment ago that it could be that a person is born with a genetic predisposition to have a desire for a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex. I did say that. And then, well, if they were born with that, then isn't that their identity? And therefore, the only way they're going to be happy and fulfilled is if, is if they are free to live that out? Well, let me ask you this. If we were all to live out our desires that we were born with, then... Every man in this room would be a multiple serial adulterer if he was able to find the girls that would cooperate. I mean, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the, come on. Now for a real honesty test, how many of you guys recognize that that's true? Come on, okay, don't look at your wife first. Just look up here. And wives, you need to understand that, okay? 
You need to understand that we're programmed, any woman that I find attractive, we're programmed to want that. And, and, and that's part of our fallen programming. That's because we live, we're born into a fallen race which has distorted desire because of the fallenness of our race. But I can't, I don't act on that desire. You know, I say no, 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 yes, this one right here. She's mine. I love her. I'm going to keep loving her for the rest of my life. That one, good job, God. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But not mine. Not mine. Mine's here. This is mine. I love her. I'm, cho- I'm setting my love on her. I'm choosing to love her over and over and over again. And so we just need to know, listen, desires are not identity. And, and we, all, we all have to say yes and no to desires that we have. Now, l- let's look at some of God's intent. I think it's really important that we understand some of God's core intent when it comes to marriage and sex and all of that, in order to really understand this issue. And there's a passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus is answering the Pharisees who were constantly trying to trick Jesus into saying something that would have been politically incorrect that they could have criticized him for. And so they're asking him a question about divorce. And in that day, there were segments of the culture that uh, believed divorce was just for any reason, And one of the standard illustrations of this over the years has been, if your wife burns the toast that morning and and you're mad at her over it, you can say, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, and it's over. She's out. And so there was that strain of thinking there. Now, women didn't have quite the same level of privilege as men did, but they're asking Jesus about this controversial issue trying to see what he's going to say that they might be able to trip him up over. And the answer he gives gives us insight into the core foundational intent and meaning of marriage. Here's what Jesus said. He answered and said, have you not read, by the stop right there, okay? Do you realize Jesus is, I don't want to say being sarcastic, but these guys have memorized this, Okay. Haven't they? Of course they've read it. They've memorized it. And so Jesus is making the point that they, that they haven't paid any attention to what they've already memorized. When he says, have you not read? He's really, it's really kind of like a, a slam against them because they've read it and they know it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, he's here identifying marriage as between a male and a female. And the lifelong commitment of marriage is between a man and a woman. And he's saying God created it that way. Now, to really understand what that means, we have to recognize God created mankind in his image. But what it says is God created man, and then it says he created them male and female. And, he, and, and this is the image of God. In his image, it takes male and female 
to completely reflect the image of God. Two men together don't reflect the image of God, not fully. Two women together don't reflect the image of God, not fully. And God's intent was for marriage to be this beautiful picture of who he was, who he is. And so at the beginning, you see Adam and Eve in this garden. And what happened every evening? Anybody, if you're not familiar with this, there's a verse that says that God would would come and walk with them in the cool of the evening. And so it was Adam and Eve and God, all right? So it always takes three. You know, a two-legged stool will tip over. You can sit on it, but you really have to be careful. A three-legged stool has balance. And so it's me, my wife, and God. Me, my wife, the Holy Spirit, part of that. And so that's what we see in the Garden of Eden. The the three of us make this relationship what it is. And then you have on the other side of that, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, And so you have this connection between God's intent for marriage and the, tri- the Trinity and how marriage with God as part of that marriage reflects the Trinity and it reflects the nature of God. And so it's, it's, it's just uh, crucial to recognize that and to recognize the importance of that, that, that God's like saying, okay, the man's incomplete and the woman's incomplete. Um, I mean... Women are just as capable of, as men. They are smart, smarter than men, wiser most of the time. So, but we are different the way we look at things. And we're obviously different physically. And so not only is it the, the, the way we look at life that needs to fit together, but physically we fit together like two pieces of a puzzle because God made us for each other. And that's how the, tr- the Trinity has this oneness about it. And yet there are three beings in the Trinity. And in this marriage relationship, there are two people, but we, are, we have become one. And it reflects the goodness of God and the glory of God. So um, j- moving on, just so that we recognize that um, the Bible does speak directly to these issues, okay? In Leviticus 18.22, there's this this statement. He says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. It's an abomination. Okay. But what he's saying, okay. Saying two men cannot lie down naked together and do the same thing that a man and a woman lie down naked together and do. That's what he's saying. And he uses that word abomination, strong word. I wish I could soften it somehow. Strong word. But the, the idea of abomination is it's something that by nature you take a step back from because it, seems, it doesn't seem right. It's, it's contrary to nature to the point that it, it, it repulses. And so to God, when he looks at this, and he sees two men or two women, and he's saying, wait a second, that's not what I intended. I wanted male and female to be together. It was going to be this beautiful coming together, and, and I'm going to be in their relationship with them, and it's going to reflect who I am, and this doesn't do it. And, and so he calls it an abomination. But in the New Testament, um, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was uh, an early follower of Jesus, 
He didn't come to know Jesus till after the resurrection, so he wasn't with Jesus in the gospel stories. But he, he had these incredible encounters with Jesus and revelation from God. And he actually spread the gospel through the Mediterranean world. And he wrote a lot of the New Testament. And here's what he said in Romans 1. And, and he's speaking about a culture that has uh, degraded. And he says, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Man committing shameless acts with men, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I'm not even going to look at that last phrase and try to unpack that. But, but he's obviously, he's saying here that the, the act of same-sex intimacy, uh, same-sex relationship, is not God's intent and plan. And now some people would say that the Apostle Paul, he lived back there in those conservative Bible days and therefore he had to write this. But that's as far from the truth as it can get. Homosexuality was rampant in the days of Paul. It was everywhere. Most of the emperors of Rome were open homosexuals. Guys like Plato, Aristotle, they were switched, they switched back and forth just fluidly and easily. And so, I mean, it was everywhere. So what Paul's writing here was totally countercultural, just like the message is countercultural today. It, was, it wasn't like he was just accommodating the, the culture of the day by writing that. Now, some people argue and say, well, what Paul was talking about was that there were men that were having sex with boys, and that was happening and that, and that was a big part of the whole thing, but, but that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say men having sex with boys. He could have said that if he wanted to. He doesn't say that. He says men with men. And others would look at that and say, well, he's talking about married men committing adultery and committing adultery with, by having sex with another man, and that that's wrong because they're violating the sanctity of the marriage. Well, that is wrong, for sure, whether it's sex with a woman or a man, it's violating the sanctity of the marriage, it's wrong, but that's not what he's talking about either. If he was, he could have said that. What he's saying here is that when a man lies with a man or a woman with a woman, that it is outside the, the purview of God's direction and God's intent and God's heart for people and what is actually best for people. That's all I'll say about that last phrase, uh, there's a due penalty for their error, but it's best. And so it gives such a distorted view of who God is. Now, in our culture today, I think it's fair to say this. At best, the best you'll see is a committed, monogamous, um, same-sex relationship. That happens. And, um, and at the worst, you'll see a culture of multiple sexual partners, one-night stands, and, and all sorts of other uh, horrible things that, that go with that lifestyle. In fact, I had a young man that was a friend of mine, still is, I just haven't seen him for a few years, but he used to come by and would talk, and, and he, was, he was gay, and the and first time I looked at him and we're talking, I thought, you know, I bet this guy's never had a hug. <sighs> From a man that was just a fatherly hug. So I just hugged him. I love you, man, and hugged him. But at one point, 
he, after time we had talked and, and, and prayed together, he said, look, he said, don't ever let anyone tell you that this, this is a great lifestyle. He said, this, this is a horrible life. And, and now he was on this other end of it. He was on the, the multiple one-night stand end of things. But what if a gay couple moves in next door to me or you? What if that happens? And what if they're the best neighbors you ever had? <laughs> Could, might, I mean, look, this, someone just came up to me after the service and, and really liked the message, but also said, you know, I had an employee once that was gay, the best employee I have ever had. Never complained, always showed up on time, did their work, on and on. And, and, and what, if, what if, like, my next-door neighbors are gay? You know what? I'm going to love them the same as I would anybody else. I'm going to love them the same as I would if a couple moves in that aren't married. I mean, I'd love them. I'm going to love them no matter what. And they might be the best neighbors. They might, all things considered, compared to families across the country, they might even be better parents than half the parents out there. Okay? I think we've got to recognize that. But that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't mitigate this whole issue of how do we reflect the glory of God and God's intent and, and what, is, what is really right for people and, 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 what, and, and what, what, what God's word says about that. And so when it all comes down to it, um, you know, there's a place in the New Testament where Paul talks about all of these things and he says, and such were some of you, he's talking to the church. Some of you were homosexual. Some of you were liars. Some of you were cheats. Some of you were gossips. Some, this, this, and this, and on. Some of you were adulterers. And then he says, but you were washed. You were cleansed. You were renewed. You were restored by Christ into life. Now, here's what I want to ask. How did they get there? Do you think someone picketed them? Telling them they're going to go to hell if they don't repent? condemning them? Do you think that they saw one of those pickets and said, oh, I think I want to become a Christian? (laughs) No, it's not how it works. It's the love of Christ that compels us. It's the love of Jesus. You know, our job is to, to seek out the lost and to love them and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so much that the love of God flows through me so that the look in my eye, the look in my, for everybody, no matter where. And so this is where we have to get back to this idea of, man, check in my heart. You know, because if someone's here thinking, oh, Van, you're being too easy on this. You should be, you know, pounding the music stand or whatever. Then I just want to say, if you're thinking that right now, maybe you need to check your heart. Maybe you need to just say, Jesus, fill me with your love, and then, and then let me evaluate this. But if you're on the other end saying, Van, how dare you say it's wrong, then again, check your heart because there is truth and, and we, can't, we can't avoid truth. And so, here's, here's what I would say to a believer that struggles with ongoing sexual desires for the same sex, I would say this, that um, I'm not judging you for your desires, okay? I'm not judging anyone for that. But I would say this, I believe that what God's asking you to do is to sacrifice those desires for the sake of the kingdom. Because we all make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom. 
We all do. I know a woman who uh, has a ministry in Africa and to AIDS patients, to young, to young mothers that, have, that had AIDS when their babies were born, and they treat these babies and work with them. She was engaged, and her fiancé came over and stayed with her for I don't know how long a period of time. And before he left, he said, I can't do this. I can't stay here. If, if you know, I don't know what was said, but implication would have been at least, if you want to marry me, you've got to come back. And she's, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do this because this is what God's called me to. Now, she obviously had desires to be married. Would, would make a great mother. But she said, no, I'm going to sacrifice all of that for the sake of the kingdom. And so, I, I, it, you know, th- th- that's, I believe, the call of Jesus to anyone that would say, I'm gay. I think he's saying, well, if, if that's what you want to say about yourself, okay. Um, but you need to sacrifice that for the sake of the kingdom. Okay. All right, so let's take a little uh, brain rest here for a second, okay? And then we're going to move on to another topic. All right, so I'm going to say 1,001, 1,002. We're all recalibrating right now, okay? We're filing all of this for later. 1,003. All right. Other question? And this is the nature of a series like this. It's not related to that first issue. Uh, Question is, where is the Garden of Eden? Okay. And And then here's this. I know there was an angel placed at the gate. If Jesus restored us from the fall, is Eden something we'll see in heaven? All right. You know, great question. Um, because to understand the Garden of Eden is to understand the kingdom of God. And for us to minister effectively, we have to understand the kingdom. Now, here's the deal. God creates the earth. He puts Adam and Eve in the, in the earth in a garden that is unique and special, which means that spot is a cut above the rest of the earth, at least a cut above the rest of the earth. And he tells them to tend that garden... But in Genesis 1.28, he gave them this command. Let's read that, okay? Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply. So have children, lots and lots of children. And fill the earth with these children. Fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. And then rule over the fish of the sea and the skies and everything else. That word subdue it is key. We miss that. What that means is the earth wasn't finished yet. It was like a house that someone's building and they move in and they, they have finished the kitchen partly and the bathroom and the bedroom. And the rest of the house is unfinished. And they're planning to finish that on the go, all right? And so... Adam and Eve get this beautiful garden, and the rest of the earth is not quite finished yet. So how would, it, how would they have filled the earth and subdued it? What do you think would have happened when they start having kids and there's too many kids to fit in the garden? I mean, we have no idea how big the garden was, but some point, not enough space. Do, do you envision them all packing up and walking out the gate and walking out into the unfinished world? That's not it. 
No, God's intent was that as they had children, that that garden was going to spread. And by that garden spreading, they were going to subdue the earth. God built what he, he said, this is it right here, this garden. This is what I built the earth for. This is the model. And now when they had children, they would have been to cultivate the rest of the earth. And it would have cooperated with them. And the Garden of Eden would have spread and eventually filled the entire earth. Does that sound anything at all to you like things we read in the New Testament? Multiply, go out into the world, fill the world, subdue it. How about Jesus saying to us, I want you to go out into the world and make disciples of all the nations and teach them everything that I've taught you. Baptize them and teach them everything I've taught you. It's the same commission. It's just that when Adam and Eve sinned, death came in. When they sinned, death entered in. And they were no longer in a position to fulfill that original call of spreading the Garden of Eden into the rest of the world because of death coming in. And so God puts them out of the garden and puts an angel at the gate. Why did he put the angel there? Because the tree of life was still there. And if they had gone back in and eaten of the tree of life in their fallen state, then they would have become eternal in a fallen state. This is, this, this is what most, most theologians, this is what I believe, uh, th- they would have become eternally fallen and beyond redemption. And so God puts that angel there to guard that gate, guard the gate of the garden so that they can't get in and eat that tree. What happened to the garden? That was part of the question. Where's the garden? Well, one of two things. Either because of the fallenness of the world, the vines crept in and everything else. You know how like if you plant a really nice garden, you go away for six weeks, you come back. It's a mess. Okay, that could have happened. Or it could be that the garden remained intact until Noah's flood. Either way, it's gone today. And will we, will we see the Garden of Eden in heaven? We're going to talk about heaven next week, but I'll just say this. Um, heaven would be a whole lot better than the Garden of Eden, I think. So we're going to talk about that next week, okay? But, but um, it's important that we understand what God's original intent was and, uh, and why, why that garden was there. And, and, what, and he, here's the thing. Adam and Eve were going to partner with God in expanding this garden throughout the earth. They were going to partner with God. And we have this tendency today to either sit back and say, well, God's sovereign. God will do it. I don't have to do anything until God kicks me in the butt and gets me out of my chair and makes me or, or whatever. I just let God do it. And, and God said, oh, wait a second. This was a partnership. Didn't you understand that? You know, uh, when my son Wilson was 13, I took him hunting. And uh, it was a youth day. So I put him up in a tree stand. He's like 10 feet above me. I put a chair out underneath and it wasn't a day dad's hunted it was just the kids and I'm sitting there and it's a beautiful morning and I'm thinking oh man I get to sit here till about 10 o'clock in the morning and then he'll get tired and want to go home and it's beautiful and this is wonderful and it's quiet and then I hear bang my first thought was Will shot himself but uh, <laughs> then he starts yelling I got it I got it I got it and literally 118 paces away there was a deer that he had shot with his 20-gauge shotgun with a slug. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of people who love animals here. Okay, we care about you too, all right? But at any rate, 
moving the story on, you might want to plug your ears. We get up to the point where you have to clean this animal. And we had this kit, and one of them had gloves that go up to your elbow, and one had gloves that just went to your wrist. I got out the up-to-the-elbow gloves and handed them to Wilson, and he looked at me, and he said, why are you giving these to me? I said, you shot it, man. I said, I'm not cleaning it. It it was a partnership. He thought I was going to do it all. He thought I was going to do it all, but it was a partnership. And so God's looking, and he's saying, all right, here, I'm giving you these gifts and I'm giving you direction. I am the commander. I'll tell you what front to fight on. I'll, gi- I'll give you wisdom as to where the next battle is supposed to be and how you're supposed to fight it. But you got to fight it. And so when we begin to grasp that, then we really begin to grasp the essence of kingdom theology. All right. So the last question we're not going to get to today. It was a great, great question. If you want to hear it, you can go to the podcast. I, I, I didn't take quite as long the first service for these first two questions, and I did deal with that question, uh, I think, adequately. We might take a few minutes next week on it. I'm not sure. It was really good. It was about the... Um... <laughs> I'm just going to tell you what it was so you'll go online and listen. Well, then we have to put... Okay, I will put both podcasts up, okay? But um, it was, why did Jesus commend the steward who took advantage of his boss. There's a parable Jesus tells where he, he, he lies to his boss and steals from his boss. And the, the answer to that is Jesus didn't commend him. The guy in the parable commended him. And that there's a whole point to that that we don't have time to go into right now. But uh, what we are going to do right now is move into the worship portion of our uh, service. And um, we're going to share in communion today.